On January 11, 2009, a plane was seen descending into the Florida panhandle. It crashed into the woods, narrowly missing nearby residents. When the authorities arrived at the scene, the pilot was nowhere to be found, but the circumstances of the crash led them to believe it wasn't an accident. When police found out who the pilot was and that he was wanted for financial fraud, a nationwide manhunt began, and a crazy plot began to unfold. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and I'm taking you on a trip to my home state of Indiana. We Hoosiers are known for our corn, basketball, the Indy 500, and the University of Notre Dame. Those of you who like spooky travel would enjoy the legend of Fox Hollow Farm, where serial killer Herb Baumeister buried several of his victims. They allegedly hunt the farm that is located in Carmel, Indiana. Today's criminal grew up and lived most of his life in the same general area. Marcus Schrenker was born in 1970. His parents were successful entrepreneurs, with his father running a successful construction company and his mother owning several businesses in the beauty and fashion industries. According to Marcus, his parents fought, and their fighting was part of one of the first lies he remembers telling. He told friends they couldn't come on site because his father was painting, when in reality, his parents were screaming at each other. The lie worked, and going forward, the lies grew. He lied to make his life easier, or to make him sound more important or impressive. When he was caught, his parents and teachers chalked the lies up to harmless fibs at first, but that would change. As a teenager, Marcus was an accomplished pilot and had dreams of becoming a professional aviator. He earned his pilot's license at the age of 17 and began working as a flight instructor, honing his skills and gaining experience. In 1992, he enrolled in Purdue University's flight program. There, he earned a degree in aviation and a reputation as a smooth-talking ladies' man who was always ready with a lie to impress the current woman of interest or to save his reputation. One girlfriend would catch STDs from Marcus twice, but he was able to convince her that she had an infection, and that was caused by her not being clean enough and that she was actually the one who gave him the diseases. Marcus honed his skills of deception until lying became second nature to him. While at Purdue, he'd meet Michelle Daly. She was a petite woman and an absolute knockout, according to Marcus. On their first date, he took her flying. Mark thought Michelle was something special, but that was because she thought he was something special. She would say things like, someday we'll have a family and you'll make a great father. Marcus said none of the other women he dated would say things like that to him. Eventually, Michelle noticed that Marcus would tell little white lies, but she never made an issue of it. Michelle was everything Marcus wanted in a woman. She was gorgeous, family-oriented, and an enabler. Despite what Michelle thought of Marcus's eccentricities, he was smart and hardworking, so she stuck by him. He graduated with degrees in aviation technology and finance. They would eventually marry and have three children. After college, Mark worked for several aviation companies, including a short stint as a regional pilot, but he found he was drawn more to finance than to flying, so he focused his efforts there. In 1996, he earned his securities license and began working as a financial advisor for John Hancock. This job didn't agree with him. He felt his job was basically a glorified insurance salesman's job. He spent his days in a cubicle, surrounded by a sea of dozens of other financial advisors, talking into headsets and making sales pitches. 
It took roughly a hundred calls to generate one sale, and it was boring. His credit cards were maxed out, and he felt like he was dying inside. Like many others, he worked every day, all day, to pay off his debt, and he was miserable. That's when he started thinking about niche marketing. Companies like AARP and USAA made huge profits by catering to one specific group, and he was a pilot after all. He started targeting pilots, and the first call he made, he sold over a million dollars in life insurance right over the phone. The second pilot he called purchased insurance and signed over his mutual funds to John Hancock. Marcus had found his niche. He focused on senior captains who made an excess of $200,000 annually. He came up with an opening story, one where he had been an F-15 fighter pilot during Desert Storm. It was all a lie, but nine out of ten pilots were so impressed with his lies, they'd transfer their holdings to Marcus, who soon started his own company. When the money started rolling in, Marcus spent it as quickly as he earned it. He's been described as a thrill-seeker and an adrenaline junkie by some media outlets and people who knew him. He bought his own plane and loved to fly it over the reservoir near his home, swooping down over his friends and neighbors. He was also involved in extreme sports like skydiving and motorcycle racing. Marcus and Michelle were known for throwing lavish parties at their home in Indiana. These parties included expensive food and drinks, live music, and other forms of entertainment. They led an exciting, extravagant lifestyle and owned multiple homes, luxury cars, a private plane, and a yacht. His plane alone was worth $2.2 million, and although Michelle fought against it, she ultimately saw it as a trade-off. She allowed him to fly around like a lunatic daredevil at international air shows, while she got to shop for Gucci purses in L.A., Prada pumps in Chicago, and diamonds in New York. They were the envy of their friends and neighbors. Alyssa, their daughter, remembers kneeboarding on the Greist Reservoir, skiing the slopes of Colorado, and a trip to Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas, and more. She said it was a huge lifestyle, but that wasn't what really mattered to her. What mattered more was the attention of her father. He'd take her dirt biking, mud bogging, and camping. He'd let her ride lawn tractors and shoot guns at the range. Her father encouraged her to become a tomboy, against her mother's warnings, and she loved him for it. Marcus taught her that she could do anything her brothers could do, and for this, and the attention he gave her, she was grateful. She was a daddy's girl and proud of it. They had the biggest house and the most toys, but despite their outward success, there were signs that Marcus's financial situation was not as stable as it appeared. On September 11, 2001, the day that hijacked planes crashed into the Twin Towers, it devastated the airline industry and Marcus's business. He filed for bankruptcy in mid-2002. He was desperate for clients and began telling them anything to get them to invest with him. Then he began stealing from them. Instead of acting in his clients' best interests, Marcus used their money for his own personal gain. One of his primary schemes involved selling his clients' investments and non-existent hedge funds. He convinced them to invest large sums of money in these funds, promising high returns and low risks. However, the hedge funds were completely fictitious. Marcus used the money to fund his lavish lifestyle and pay off other debts. In addition to his hedge fund scheme, he engaged in other forms of financial fraud. He sold insurance policies to clients that were never actually purchased, and he forged signatures on investment documents in order to divert money into his own accounts. 
His fraudulent activities eventually caught up with him, and he was sued by several clients who accused him of financial misconduct. In 2006, he was sued and ordered to pay over $500,000 in damages to one of his clients, and in 2007, he was ordered to pay over $300,000 to another. Despite these legal challenges, he continued to engage in fraudulent activities. It was this pattern of deceit and financial misconduct that ultimately led to his downfall. Things weren't going well at home, either. Alyssa remembers her mother and father being gone a lot, leaving her and her brothers home with the nanny. She said her father drank often and didn't spend much time with the family anymore. He became standoffish to Michelle. And it wasn't long before Alyssa found out why. Marcus had begun having an affair. He was bold. According to Alyssa, he took her on dates with his mistress. It bothered Alyssa how her dad behaved around this woman, giving her the kind of affection that she knew should be reserved for her mother. Marcus swore his daughter to secrecy, but Michelle found out anyway. When she did, Alyssa remembers huge fights between her mother and father. She began to fear her father, wondering when it was safe to approach him. His affair partner was a big part of his eventual downfall. According to reports, they met in 2007 and began a relationship shortly after. They carried on their affair for more than a year, covertly meeting in hotels and other secluded locations. I bet he made her all the promises he once made to Michelle. He spent large sums of money on her, including paying for her rent and giving her large cash gifts. When Michelle found out about the affair, it was because she discovered emails between the two of them. She confronted Marcus about the messages, and he admitted to it. The couple attempted to work through their issues, but Marcus was dealing with yet another issue, an addiction to opiates and alcohol. It all became too much to bear. In 2008, when the U.S. stock market crashed, causing him and his clients to lose money, Marcus's company, Heritage Wealth and Management, lost millions of dollars in the market downturn. His investment business was crumbling. These clients were discovering discrepancies in their accounts, and massive amounts of money was missing. Court judgments were going up against him, and debts were piling up. He was also facing personal financial difficulties, including unpaid taxes. Criminal investigators came to his house looking for evidence. The Shrinker family's bubble of luxury was about to pop. As the pressure mounted, Marcus became increasingly desperate to escape his problems. In December of 2008, he began to transfer assets from his company to offshore accounts in an attempt to shield them from his creditors. He also began to sell off his personal assets, including his luxury cars and yacht. That same month, Amidst marital infidelities and financial strain, Michelle filed for divorce. In the midst of all of this, Marcus' stepfather died. He felt like he was coming unraveled, and he snapped. According to Marcus, he drove home to his house in Indianapolis, and when he walked inside and saw there were four plates at the kitchen table, and not a fifth one for him, he was deeply wounded. Michelle stood up and told him that he wasn't welcome in the home. Reeling with emotions, he began planning for a future without Michelle, but it wasn't divorce he was thinking about. On a cold night in January, just a couple weeks after Christmas, he drove to the airport where he kept his airplane. He revved up the single-engine turboprop and filed a flight plan for Destin, Florida. When he took off, he began a trip that would make national headlines. He didn't call the tower. He didn't call ground control. The runway wasn't even plowed. 
He just took off. He took, by his account, ten Oxycontin painkillers to take the edge off. He later told the police his idea was simple. He'd commit suicide and make it look like an accident. That way, Michelle could collect the insurance. To ensure that he would die, he disabled the parachute that he had with him and wire-tied it shut. But let's be honest, if he really wanted to kill himself, why would he need a parachute at all? His lies weren't so smart after all. After reaching Destin, he changed course and flew toward the Gulf of Mexico. Marcus claims his plan suddenly changed, and instead of killing himself, he hatched an elaborate plan to fake his death. According to Marcus, at a height of nearly 24,000 feet over Alabama, he began shouting into his headset. He was flying through the freezing cold January air in the dark at 300 miles an hour when Atlanta flight controllers would hear, Atlanta Center, this is an emergency. I'm experiencing severe turbulence and my windshield is spider cracking. Then they heard, the windshield has failed. The air traffic controllers immediately scrambled around, desperately rerouting commercial air traffic. They told the pilot to descend immediately. Marcus had pre-programmed the autopilot for a rapid descent to 10,000 feet, where the aircraft would level off and fly over the Gulf of Mexico. He turned the autopilot on, and the plane nosed down quickly, and the violent descent began. He shouted, Atlanta Center! The windshield has failed! I'm bleeding profusely! That lie came out as smoothly as all the other lies that had been oozing out of Marcus's lying lie hole. He wrapped his headset around the yoke of the plane and crawled from the cockpit into the seating area. Then he slipped on the parachute. As the aircraft plummeted, he tied a bag filled with roughly 50 pounds of gold to his ankle. He could hear the air traffic controllers screaming, Descend immediately! from the cockpit when he slipped some oxycodone into his mouth and swallowed them up. He grabbed the plane's door handle with both hands, and he thought for a second about his soon-to-be ex-wife and three beautiful children. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As the plane descended further, he told himself he was better off without them, and he twisted the handle of the plane with all his might. According to his plan, once the aircraft reached 10,000 feet, it would level off and fly over the ocean, run out of fuel, and silently plunge into the Gulf of Mexico, disappearing under a 1,000 feet of water but that's not what happened. About halfway into turning the door handle, the atmospheric seal broke and the decompression pulled the door open, along with Marcus, and yanked him right out of the cabin. He slammed into the door on the way out of the plane. His parachute strap caught on part of the door, and the door flung him out and smashed him into the side of the aircraft. Between the 300-mile-an-hour winds and the pitching and yawning of the plane, he was repeatedly bashed against the aluminum fuselage. When he thought things couldn't get worse, the single-use parachute deployed and was instantly shredded by the hurricane-strength wind. Suddenly, the plane pitched upward and the nylon parachute's vest strap snapped, sending Marcus tumbling through the air with the useless, tattered remnants of his parachute trailing up behind him. 
The plane disappeared into the distance as the gold dragged him towards the ground and his inevitable death. On the upside, the oxycodone was kicking in. He saw the reflection of the moon on the Coosa River as it wound its way through the Alabama hills, then he smashed down through the treetops. He fell through a hundred-foot-tall oaks and pines, snapping off branches and twigs as he went. Luckily, the parachute's cords caught in the branches and slowed his descent. Then the cords yanked on the nylon harness, cutting into his ribs before he hit the cold water only feet from the tree line. Just before 10 o'clock the next morning, Air Force fighter pilots who had been notified by air traffic control and who had begun following the plane noticed it was decelerating and losing altitude. They had also noticed that the windshield was intact and the door was open. The pilot was gone and the plane had run out of gas. It smashed into a swampy wooded area in the backwaters of East Milton, Florida, a few miles short of the Gulf of Mexico and only 50 to 75 yards from a residential area. Sergeant Scott Haynes of the Santa Rosa, Florida Sheriff's Office would say that the plane actually rolled and landed on its roof, upside down, with a propeller against an oak tree. There was no blood, and the windshield was intact. It was clear to them that the pilot was not in this location. It was obvious that they were dealing with something a lot more than just an accidental plane crash. Marcus had actually landed in the woods near Childersburg, Alabama, hours earlier. He had told air traffic control that he was bleeding profusely, but that was a lie. He landed with barely a scratch on him, but he was dirty and disheveled. It was about 2.30 in the morning when he made his way to a private residence and knocked on the door. He told the residents he'd been in a canoe accident with friends, and he was wet from the knees down. He was taken into town where he made contact with local police officers. The officers, unaware of the plane crash, took him to a hotel in Harpersville, Alabama. He was gone by the time the officers returned, after they learned that the U.S. Marshals were looking for a missing pilot. Marcus had paid for his room in cash, before disguising himself and running into the woods next to the hotel. Later that day, the Indiana Financial Securities Division obtained a temporary restraining order. It froze Marcus and Michelle's personal assets, and the assets of three of his companies. At the same time, several states away, Marcus made his way to a storage facility where his red Yamaha motorcycle was waiting for him. When investigators searched the airplane and found out who the pilot had been, they set up a multi-state dragnet. They found evidence of pre-planning in the plane. On the back of a book inside was a written list containing bullet points, which included the following. Cracked windshield, Window imploded, bleeding profusely, or words to that effect. Words that echoed the emergency calls he had made the night before. The most critical piece of evidence was that a U.S. campground directory was found in the wreckage. It had the section with Florida State campground sites ripped out of it. And sure enough, nearly 24 hours after plunging from his plane, Marcus ended up at a campground in Chattahoochee, Florida. Inside his tent, Marcus's lies were catching up to him. He had stashed a laptop along with his motorcycle, and he went online. When he did, he was shocked to learn that his plane hadn't crashed into the Atlantic Ocean as he had planned. He was a wanted man. He'd later recall the moment, saying, When I saw myself on the website, it was over. You know, I had no desire to live at this point, and I missed my family so much. 
This time, Marcus really was trying to take his life. He cut his wrists with a camping knife. He lost a lot of blood, coming close to death, but the authorities were quickly closing in. The campground owners, Troy and Carolyn Hastings, said they first heard the call from law enforcement when the local sheriff called late on that hot Tuesday night. Earlier that evening, the couple had grown suspicious of a camper who hadn't checked out by 5 p.m. and had only paid for one night. Troy went to the tent and saw a red stain on one of the outer flaps. He asked, Are you okay? Are you planning to spend another night? Marcus replied from inside that he was and he'd be by later to pay, but he never came. The Hastings got busy with dinner, during which the sheriff called and asked if anything odd was going on at the campground or if any men fitting Marcus' description had checked in. Troy remembered the camper, and the sheriff asked if they could come and identify him. When the sheriff arrived, the Hastings didn't need to look at the picture long to know that it was Marcus. Police then swarmed the campground and found Marcus bloody and barely conscious inside the tent. He doesn't remember being found at the campsite but investigators say Marcus was white as a ghost and wasn't breathing when they got to him. He was flown by helicopter to a local hospital. At the campground, U.S. Marshals gathered his belongings. He had outfitted himself for escape and survival. In the saddlebags of his motorcycle, he had several MREs, or meals ready to eat, military style. He had extra clothing, a lot of cash, close to $3,000, and a GPS unit. When he had checked into the campground, he checked in under the name John Smith. I mean, come on, if you're going to come up with a fake name, you could do better than John Smith. When he checked in, he told the owners he was traveling across the country with friends. He paid for his campsite in cash, bought some firewood and a six-pack of Bud Light Lime. He was also given a password to use the wireless internet. He disappeared into his tent for a while. When he re-emerged, he was seen by several campers and the campground owners, who reported that he seemed agitated and was behaving strangely. He later purchased a bottle of vodka and several bottles of water from a nearby store and returned to his tent. Marcus had been caught. His next stop after the hospital would be a jail cell. He would face two federal charges, filing a false distress call and intentionally destroying an airplane. Despite what Marcus would tell authorities, the truth was that his plan wasn't a last-minute drug-induced decision. It wasn't an accident at all. He had planned ahead for days, maybe even months. The night before his bizarre flight, he had driven all the way from Indiana to Alabama. He scouted an area where he could land by parachute and search for a place to store his motorcycle. He spoke with the storage facility's owner and was calm and friendly. He gave a fake name and said he needed to store his broken motorcycle for a couple days. He said he had broken down and somewhere down the road someone had directed him their way. He wanted to rent one of their garages. Marcus was talkative and charming and said he was headed to Florida. Then he drove home to Indiana and prepared to leave his old life. When he was well enough to be interviewed, investigators honed in on the motorcycle. Marcus was asked what his plan was when he towed his motorcycle to the storage facility, and he said, I didn't have a plan. I was so mentally devastated at that point. It was really the divorce that hit me very hard. After my stepfather's funeral, I just snapped, and I started driving. 
Of course, investigators knew that this was another lie. It was obvious, in gathering all the intelligence and all the information about the flight, that Marcus had planned ahead of time to escape and fake his own death. Marcus defended himself, saying that he would have left his IDs on the plane if he was trying to fake his death. He would have filled the plane full of fuel and let it go out over the gulf just like he planned and it would never be found. But this was another lie. In fact, he had topped off his fuel tank, with hopes of pulling off the perfect disappearing scheme. If his plan had worked, he would be presumed dead and no one would have found his body. But his calculations were wrong and the plane crashed just a few miles short of the gulf. His plan disintegrated. Immediately after the plane had crashed, Marcus's daughter Alyssa, unaware at the time, remembers going to school the next day at Fall Creek Intermediate School in Fishers, Indiana. She was in fifth grade, and she noticed the adults were acting weird around her. Her mom came to pick her up from school early, but she ducked questions about the change of routine. When Alyssa arrived home, her house was full of people, and that was when her mom finally sat her down and told her that her dad had crashed in a plane. They didn't know where he was, and Alyssa thought he was dead. The next couple of days, she was kept in a bubble, with no TV, no internet, no newspapers. She didn't go to school. She sat at home, scared and confused. Eventually, she was able to get online, where she discovered that her father had survived and that he was in a world of trouble. The federal officials began seizing the family's assets and freezing their bank accounts. The shrinker still lived in a million-dollar house, but had no money for groceries, and soon the house would go too, along with the boat, the cars, and everything else. They were all auctioned off to pay her father's investors back, pennies on the dollar. Alyssa's older brother, Tyler, was 13 at the time of the crash. He remembers his mother making the best of a tough situation and trying to keep life as normal as possible. Some kids at his school turned their backs on him, but he said that's how he found out who his true friends were. Alyssa's memories were darker. She remembers food being scarce, fighting with her brother, and feeling as though her mother was not giving her enough attention. She lost her way for many years. At Marcus' trial, the prosecution presented a wealth of evidence to show that he had engaged in fraudulent behavior. They also presented evidence that he had used fake identities to open bank accounts and had been involved in a Ponzi scheme. They argued that he had intentionally crashed his plane in order to fake his own death and escape authorities, and that his motive for doing so was to escape with millions of stolen dollars. The defense argued that he was suffering from severe depression and was not in a sound state of mind when he attempted to carry out his plan. However, the prosecution presented evidence indicating that he planned for the scheme for months in advance, which obviously suggested premeditation and awareness of his actions. Overall, the prosecution's case against Marcus was strong, one built on a foundation of solid evidence, compelling enough to lead to his conviction on multiple charges. While in jail, Marcus spun a different story, one he would share with another prisoner named Matthew Cox. Matthew is now an author, one whose articles and book I used as a reference for this episode and quoted several times. Matthew, at the height of his crime spree, led the FBI and Secret Service on a multi-state chase as he assumed dozens of identities and defrauded some of America's largest banks out of tens of millions of dollars. But that life is behind him now. He found a new calling after prison. Writing. 
He's written about people he met in prison, including Marcus. Marcus approached him, wanting him to write a different version of his story. He said he shouldn't even be in prison. He said he'd been the victim of a group of disgruntled clients that had lost money and made some bad investments. Yes, he sold a bunch of index annuities that ended up underperforming, but that wasn't his fault. He shouldn't be blamed for the market. While he was struggling to convince insurance companies to return the client's funds, his wife discovered him having an extramarital affair. She then took control of his offshore accounts, bilking clients out of over $1.5 million for which he was ultimately charged. According to Marcus, Michelle framed him. Matthew did his own research, and the evidence was overwhelming. Michelle hadn't been involved in either of Marcus's financial schemes or his attempt to fake his death. Instead, Matthew would describe Marcus as a habitual liar. In the end, Matthew wrote a book called Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. It's not exactly the story that Marcus wanted written, but it's more factual than most of what comes out of Marcus's mouth. Marcus would end up spending six years in jail, but is now free and living in Florida, not too far from where his plane went down. Hopefully, he's on the straight and narrow. But if his past is an indicator, there's a good chance he's on the wavy and wide. Thanks for listening. As always, there are pictures to go with this episode on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as on Patreon. I would love to have you join me and other Twisted Travelers online by joining these groups or sharing the podcast on social media. I put links in the show description to make things easy for you, and I sure appreciate your support. As always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Today's outtake. He had told air traffic control that he was bleeding, bleeding profusely. 